So tonight we're looking at lesson one. Um, lesson one is entitled The Summary, Necessity, and Reliability of God's Word. Um, we're looking at page seven in your, in your book. It's uh, this maroon book looks kind of like this and um, entitled Growing in Grace. Um, <clears throat> and there's, there's some introductory stuff that I'll leave for your homework uh, for you to go through on your own after we go through tonight's lesson. Um, but we're going to begin by reading in the book of Acts. Um, in the book of Acts is in the, in the New Testament. And, um, and we'll actually go right here. Book of Acts. Sorry. Acts 8, verse 26 through 39. Um, you should be able to see it on your screen. Philip and the Ethiopian. Um, and two bullet points that we're going to watch for in this, in this lesson. Uh, first, that God sent Philip to explain God's word to somebody who wanted to know more about it. And then secondly, Philip used the verses that the man was reading from Isaiah chapter 53 to explain everything that Jesus did for us. Um, so Acts 8 verses 26 through 39. And that should be entirely on your screen right now. It reads like this. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip... Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. The eunuch was reading this passage of scripture. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before the shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, Tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again but went on his way rejoicing. All right, so um, the, way this, the way this class kind of runs is we'll be looking at a portion of God's word together. And, um, and I've got a series of questions that will kind of help guide our study of this portion of God's word. And, and the, the other big idea for you to keep tucked in the back of your mind is that every question that kind of comes up to you that, that you've got um, is something worth asking. And so if there are any other, you know, any words that don't make sense or concepts that you want a little bit more explanation about, um, this, this class is basically a brief overview of the basics of our Christian faith. And um, yeah, so I guess um, as we get started here, Acts 8 verses 26 and following, did you have any questions about anything that we read right in this section? And it's okay if you don't. All right. Um, so looking at this passage, this is uh, number one, if you're following along in your workbook. Look at the passages that the Ethiopian was reading. Um, this is verses 32 and 33, uh, this section right here. The, the eunuch asked Philip whether Isaiah was talking about himself or someone else. Who was it that Isaiah was talking about here? Isaiah was the, the prophet that he was reading from the Old Testament. So verse 34 here, we have that question. Tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? So who is it? Looking at verse 35 that Isaiah was talking about. Well, pretty straightforward. Um, Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. 
that all of scripture, all of the Bible is about Jesus. And in this, this little section right here that he is reading, the eunuch was reading about Jesus. Um, led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before the shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. All right, so that's that's number one, um, and I guess the only other the only other caveat is this is my first time teaching through this course. I've taught I've taught this this type of course um, out of like four four different curriculums, four different curricula. But this is the first time on this on this curricula, so it's a little bit new for both of us. Um, so all that being said, uh, Isaiah is talking about Jesus. Number two, um, the Ethiopian man had been to Jerusalem to worship. So he must have known something about the true God, but he was reading the scriptures to learn more. Looking at Romans 1 verse 20 and Romans 2 verse 14, if you never opened a Bible, what are some things that you could know about God? I'll pull that up on our screen. Romans 1 verse 20. This will take a volunteer if somebody is willing to read for us tonight. Or I can read, I like, I like that. Uh, verse 20, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. All right, so looking at this section, even if you never opened a Bible, um, God says that there are some things that we can clearly see based on what we see in the world around us. Some things that we can clearly know about God based on the world around us. And that's kind of right here. Um, God's invisible qualities. Uh, first of all, that God is powerful. Um, you look at the mountains and you can say to yourself, well, I, I could never create a mountain. Um, God is divine. He must be greater than, than you or I. He can do things that we could not. Um, he's, he's powerful and he's, and he's divine. Every person, here's the point, every person knows that by nature. That is to say, every single person in this world can look at the world around them and say, there must be someone greater than me. And if they deny that, they, are, they aren't being true to themselves even. Okay, so that's kind of the first thing. Um, what is something that every person can know about God from nature? That he is, that he's powerful and that he is divine. Uh, we've got a little bit more coming up here in the other passage that's mentioned there in green for number two, uh, Romans 2 verses 14 and 15. Um, right here. And it's talking about people who do not have the written Bible. Um, this, sometimes we encounter this word on the screen, Gentiles. Um, Gentiles refer to everybody who is not Jewish, everybody who is not descended from Abraham, um, everybody who is not from Israel, okay? Um, and we're talking about people who don't have the Bible written down for them. Um, and so that's what we have here in verses 14 and 15 reads like this. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the written law, since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their conscience is also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. And I guess to highlight some of this, um, Gentiles who do not have the law, they don't have the written word of God, but even though they don't, by their very nature, they do the things that God's law says. So God's law says, do not murder. And even communities that don't have a Bible at all, they have laws against murder. God's law says, do not steal. And they have laws against stealing. Um, and the fact that people have laws like that, the fact that they do these by nature things required by the law, they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. So this is the other way that every person can know about God. And the first way that every person can know about God is when they look at creation, they look at the world, and they recognize that there is someone or something greater than me. 
So you look at nature and you know there is a God. But then secondly, um, you know from your own conscience. That's what we call it. Um, the conscience is God's law written on our hearts. We know from our own conscience that God's that God exists and that he has standards and that we even fall short. Um, that's what he's talking about here, that their consciences bear witness. That conscience is the voice of God's law in our hearts. And that conscience says, Pastor Hagen, you've done something wrong, um, accusing me. And sometimes even Pastor Hagen, that was a good thing. You know, you just went and shoveled the driveway um, or whatever the case may be. That was a good thing. May conscience, that voice of God's law says, hey, you've done something well. Okay. So do, does that make sense? Any questions? So number two, if you never opened a Bible, what are some things that you could know about God? Um, first of all, that God is powerful and wise. And secondly, he has standards. <laughs> and I guess together with that, um, if we fall short of his standards, there is a punishment. You know, I like to describe that conscience as, as kind of that feeling in the pit of your stomach. Like when mom says, don't, don't have anything to eat before supper. I just made some cookies, but leave them in, until after supper. And then you sneak, sneak one anyway. <laughs> it's kind of that feeling that says, uh oh, I've, I've done something wrong. Um, or maybe, you know, that feeling that you get when you cheated and then you got caught for it. Um, it's that feeling that voice of God's law that says, I have trans transgressed um, God's moral code. I have done something that is not correct. That's the conscience. And so, let's see. Yeah. So I guess the, the key terms, we've got a different, different screen to share. Where's Keynote? Share. All right. There we are. All right. Um, so our first key term is the conscience. We'll take that away. Um, and this goes in that, this is in that purple box on your page. The conscience is the voice that God places in us that tells us what is right and wrong, especially what is against God's will. That's the conscience. Um, is, that, is that filled in for you in your, in your own workbook or not? If anybody has a workbook with them right now. Do you have this filled in already or do you have to write that into your workbook? All right, we'll go on to the next one. Yeah, so the conscience is that voice of God's law in our hearts telling us what is right and wrong. And our other key term um, on this page is the natural knowledge of God. Um, natural knowledge of God is what, what every person can know about God from nature and from our conscience. So every person can look at nature and know that God exists. Um, every person can know from their conscience that God exists. And they don't need a Bible to, to know this. Um, they, they know this just by what God has created and by what God has done for us. Um, so every person knows that God, that God is powerful, that God has standards, that we fall short. Okay. All right. Um, number three, I think this is where are we? number seven. There we go. So natural knowledge of God, everything that we can know about God and from our conscience. Number three, our natural knowledge of God doesn't tell us everything we can know and need to know about God. What doesn't it tell us? Um, this one might come from, from your own background from your own understanding. Um, but I guess you don't, you don't learn about Jesus from the natural knowledge of God. You know, staring at a beautiful mountain or a beautiful sunset might be, might be beautiful. It might be wonderful. It might be relaxing. But it doesn't tell you anything about Jesus. 
Um, and the conscience, all the conscience is, is the voice of God's law. It tells us what we have to do and how we have fallen short. It doesn't tell us what God has done and what he has done for us. It doesn't tell us, you know, on the page here, um, how he rescued us from our sin through Jesus' life and death and resurrection. So if we can't, number four, if we can't learn about Jesus and what he's done by looking at creation or by looking into our hearts, where do we need to learn about him? Um, we'll be in 2 Timothy 3, verse 15. Right there, highlighted in blue. 2 Timothy 3, verse 15 reads like this. And how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So we can't learn about Jesus from nature. We can't learn about Jesus from our conscience. But where do we learn about Jesus? Well, it's right there. Um, from infancy you have known what? The Holy Scriptures, that is, the Bible. The Bible tells us something that we could not know about our God. Okay. Um, sorry, I'm still getting used to Zoom. It's been a while. <laughs> so number, uh, number four. Um, where do we need to learn about Jesus? Well, in the Bible, <laughs> plain and simple. You can't know about Jesus from, from staring at a beautiful sunset. Um, you can't know about Jesus by thinking about what your, what your heart says to you. You need something outside of yourself, and that something is the Bible, which kind of leads us into our key term at the bottom of the page, um, revealed knowledge of God. We already had the natural knowledge of God, which was two things. Um, it's whatever, the natural knowledge of God is what people know about God by nature, that they can look at the world around them and recognize that God is powerful. They can look at the voice of God's law in their hearts and recognize that God has standards and we fall short. But God needed to reveal something more to us that we call the revealed knowledge of God. Um, and, and that definition here is everything we learn about God in his word that we couldn't learn anywhere else. Most notably that Jesus is our savior from sin. So you don't know about Jesus by a beautiful sunset. Um, you don't know about God's grace to you on the basis of what your heart says and how you're feeling. Um, you only know what God has done to save you based on what he has revealed in his word. And so if you want uh, you know, the revealed knowledge of God is the Bible, <laughs> plain and simple. Um, and everything that God tells us there is, is part of that revealed knowledge of God. So far, so good. Any questions? So what does the Bible tell us? Uh, next page, we get into Matthew... Chapter 3, beginning in verse 7, um, top of page 8, I believe. And we see here that the Bible underscores the seriousness of sin. Um, and there's kind of two points that we're going to be seeing in this section. First of all, that John the Baptist's job was to get the people ready for Jesus and the ministry of Jesus. And then secondly, um, part of that was, you know, getting the people ready was pointing out their sin so that when Jesus came, they would see the solution to their sin, okay? Um, so Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 7, reads like this. But when he, that is John the Baptist, saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath, produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, 
whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. All right, so any questions about what we just read here? I think um, in verse 12, when he says his winnowing fork is in his hand, he's going to clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn, burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Um, that's, that's a strong warning to these people that, that if they are not producing fruit, that is, if they are not living the life of a believer, then Jesus is going to come and destroy them. He's going to come and burn them up and condemn them to hell. That's a serious thing. Um, we very often don't think of Jesus and in those sharp terms, but we recognize that he is the true God and that he has that ability and that authority. All right. So number five, uh, top of the page here. Some of the people listening to John had the wrong idea about why they would go to heaven. What was their wrong idea? Looking at verse nine. Because they were children of Abraham or yeah. because of things they did. Yeah, verse nine, they, he's, they, they thought, well, we don't have to do anything. Um, we've got Abraham as our father. That's good enough. I've, uh, I'm descended from him. They thought they would go to heaven because they were related to Abraham. And John the Baptist says, no way. You know, God, if, if God was concerned about that, he could use any old rock to make children for Abraham. Um, God wants us to produce fruit. That is to be, uh, to live a godly life. Um, so number six, what does John the Baptist say about this idea? That's, that's kind of the, you know, same, same basic question, I guess. Um, we've got, let's see, here we are. Yeah, so number six, what, what did John the Baptist say about that idea? Well, family relationships don't determine who goes to heaven. It's not who you're related to. It's not who your, your parents are. Um, it's not that you know somebody in a position of power. That isn't going isn't gonna to cut it. All right, so number seven, um, this takes us back to the book of Matthew, uh, Matthew 19. If you're following along in your workbook, number seven, the religious leaders didn't want to admit it, but they and everyone else deserved God's anger and punishment. According to Jesus in Matthew 7, verses 17 to 19, and Matthew 5, verse 48, how good do you have to be to have eternal life? Uh, Matthew 19, verses 17, 17 through 19, reads like this. Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied. There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, obey the commandments. Which ones? The man inquired. Jesus replied. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. <laughs> so Jesus says, um, if you want to, because the man had asked, teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? And Jesus's answer is, well, obey the commandments. Whoa. <laughs> is Jesus even Lutheran here? How about this one? Um, this one's a, a fairly short fairly short verse, Matthew 5, verse 48, reads like this. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So according to Jesus, how good do you have to be to have eternal life? Um, his standard is perfection. His standard is no, no sinful thought. His standard is no hint of greed. His standard is um, no hurtful word none ever throughout your entire life his standard is perfection so that's number number seven well how good do you have to be anybody here measure up um i know i don't how about number eight um 
what did John say they should that should have made the religious leaders afraid as they thought about the fact that they weren't perfect? That's a problem here. Um, what did John say? That God would judge those who don't produce good fruit, that is to say, those who sin. And deep down, our, there's, there's a part of us, that conscience, that says, yeah, that's me. And also there's a part of us that says, well, it it's, can't be that bad. Um, it, was, it was just just one time. And who does God think he is? And there, you know, God's law really convicts us. God says perfect. And you can't talk your way out of it. Wow, that's, that's kind of terrifying. And I guess this lesson kind of follows, follows the same basic format that I've, I've used before in a number of other courses like this, is that it's like going down into the valley and we see ourselves as God sees us. And that's, that's a terrifying thing. Uh, so number nine um, says that none of us have been perfect. According to Romans 6, verse 23, what is the result of our sin? Uh, 6 verse 20, oops, sorry. 6 verse 23a is the little letter A just means the first half of the verse. Um, what does God say is the result of our sin? The wages of sin is death. And, the, and so, you know, the fact that every person dies proves that every person is sinful. Um, and the fact that a person passes away proves that they were sinful. <laughs> it's like, you know, you got your first job and you're flipping burgers at McDonald's or, you know, making ice cream cones at Dairy Queen or whatever it happens to be. And, um, and at the end of the pay period, you get a paycheck for the hours that you worked. Well, that was, that was what you had earned on the basis of what you did. And God uses that same word here for the wages, the paycheck of sin is death. Um, the paycheck for, for sinful thoughts um, sinful words, hurtful ideas, hurtful words, <laughs> and actions that go against God's law, the paycheck, um, what we earned for all of our deeds, all of our work, is death. And we can't avoid it. That every person dies, no matter how old or how young, um, whether we live to be seven or 107, each person dies. And that's, that's kind of the, the next part of our, I think for next week, I'll put all the verses here into our, into our presentation. Uh, number nine, none of us have been perfect according to Romans 6 that we just read. What is the ultimate result of sin? That we will die. The ultimate result of sin is eternal death in hell. Not just that our bodies die, but that there is an afterlife. And there are only two um, two options for this afterlife, either eternal life with God in heaven or eternal death under God's judgment in hell. Eek. How about this? Uh, number 10, the Bible teaches us that we are sinners who deserve punishment. This teaching is called God's law. Um, according to Romans 3 and Galatians 3, why can't we get to heaven by keeping God's law? Well, we should, uh, we should look at those verses, then we'll come back to that. Um, Romans 3, verse 20. Uh, better start up here. Reads like this. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. So God's law um, basically says do and don't, right? Um, and... <laughs> <laughs> and and if you're starting to feel pretty badly like oh pastor Hagen, this was a mistake i should be in this class right now because this sounds just terrible um i gotta tell you that there's more coming but god's law says do and do not and god tells us here in romans 3 verse 20 that if all you ever got when you go to church was a list of um, more of a list of do this and don't do that then that's hopeless and if all church, all that God ever told us in his Bible was just another list of do's and don'ts, then that would be worthless and, and hopeless. 
because no one will be declared righteous. Uh, it's the same, same idea as um, a little bit earlier, number seven, when we said that you have to be perfect to go to heaven. God says you will not be declared perfect on the basis of what you do. Whew. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that, that kind of brings us to our key term. And even, even, for, even for me, I love teaching this course and I love teaching this, this topic, but it's, it's a lot <laughs> because we confront God's law with everything that God has to say. That's our key term toward the, the bottom of page eight um, is law. Um, the part of God's word that tells us what we should and should not do, as well as the punishment we deserve, as well as the need for our savior. Um, I guess I'll break. Yeah, it's kind of three parts here. So it tells us what to do, not do, as well as the punishment for that. Um, and that we can't do it on our own. The, yeah, the easy summary is do and don't do. Any questions? So that is, that is God's law. And that is a, that's a spiritual reality that is found throughout the Bible. Um, sometimes we talk about the Old Testament as being, you know, having a lot of law, and we, we use these terms in different ways sometimes. Um, but here, when we talk about God's law, there, we're talking about what God demands, do this and don't do that, okay? We'll talk about that a little bit more when we get to lessons uh, 11 to 17, a little bit later in the book. <clears throat> Excuse me. Page nine, and this is... This is almost the last section. Um, John 1, top of page 9, the Bible reveals the solution for sin because, um, because we can't do it on our own. Man's perfection, all right? So the bullet points there at the top, of the top of page 9, because we cannot obey the law perfectly as God demanded, we were in a hopeless situation. Secondly, God sent Jesus to be our Savior to rescue us when we couldn't help ourselves. And then thirdly, John the Baptist made clear to everyone who would listen that Jesus was the Savior we all needed. All right, so we're going to be in John 1, beginning in verse 29. And we'll read verses 29 through 34. It reads like this. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I would not have known him, except that the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. All right, so far so good. Um, see, we haven't talked about the, the terms a whole lot. That's all right. Um, so number 11, John the Baptist didn't just proclaim the law, and thus condemn the people for their sins. Because if that's all they did, if that's all he did, they already had that written on their hearts. <laughs> and if all he did was tell them, do this and don't do that, and look at what you've done, um, that, doesn't, that alone doesn't accomplish anything of spiritual good, anything of spiritual value. But, number 11, John the Baptist also showed them the solution to their sins. What was that solution? Verse 29, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him, said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And this is a beautiful statement because this word sin is the word that we use to describe um, breaking God's law, breaking, doing something that God says not to do is sin, um, not doing something that God says we should do is sin. And John has pointed out the sin of the people, but then he points them to Jesus and says, look, there is somebody who takes away the sin of the world. 
And so the question is, you know, are you part of the world? Yes, I sure hope so. Um, you could even put your own name in that blank. Look, the Lamb of God who takes the way, takes away the sin of, of Adam or Andrew or Anna or any other A names, Anastasia, um, or fill in your own name in that blank. There is the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who takes away your sin. Uh, so number 12, John is proclaiming the gospel. This is the other word, the other term that we have on this page. Um, 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 uh, shows what the gospel means to us. Uh, we'll start with this one. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 reads like this. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If we look at that verse, um, you notice the picture of, of an exchange, of a trade, that the one who did not have sin carries our sin, and the one who used to have sin has it taken away so that we are now righteous. There's that word again. Um, it's the same concept as being perfect or being holy, being righteous, so that there's a great exchange that God has, that Jesus Christ has traded our sin for his perfection. And, um, and so that in God's eyes, you are holy, you are perfect, because the Lamb of God, Jesus the Lamb of God, has taken away the sin of the world. Jesus the Lamb of God has taken away your sin and mine. And uh, perhaps this one is, is familiar. Um, I like to include John 3, verses 16 and 17 together. Uh, verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So these passages that we just looked at, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, and John 3, verses 16 and 17, really encapsulate or briefly summarize the gospel message for us. And you notice the message is not do this and don't do that. And the message is not if you do this, then God will forgive you. The message is God gave his son. God sent his son to save the world. God took our sin upon himself and gave us his perfection. Um, the gospel is, is a giving, <laughs> is God giving the perfection of Jesus to you and to me. Um, so where are we? We're at number 12. So G John, back here in John 129, where, where John said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John proclaims the gospel. We just read the passages that show us what the gospel means to us. Uh, summarizing that, well, Jesus took the guilt of our sins upon himself and he suffered the punishment that we deserved. So whoever believes in him has eternal life. And, um, and even a little bit more than that, um, that, this, that this belief is something that God creates. God even does the work of bringing us to faith in him. That faith isn't our decision to believe in God. Faith is God's work through his gospel message. So all he does and all I do pastorally is the exact same thing as John the Baptist. I point and I say, here, this is the Lamb of God who has taken away your sin and mine. Okay, does that make sense? Any questions? All right, we have a few more key terms. Um, our key term, the gospel the part of God's word that tells us what Jesus has done for us to take away our sin. Short summary is done. So if law is do and don't, the gospel says done. Um, and it is gospel because Jesus has fulfilled all the do's and don'ts of God's law, and he has given that to you and, and to me free of charge. Um, and so there, there are gospel passages throughout the Bible um, we, and this is where kind of the terminology is a little bit difficult sometimes, because we call Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, um, the four, the first four books of the New Testament, we call them the four Gospels. 
Um, but the reason we do that is because they, they show us the, the life and ministry of Jesus, who is the gospel in the flesh, the one who has come to take away the sin of the world. Okay. Um, our next key term is the Savior. Um, we use this term to describe the one who takes away people's sin. Jesus' name means the Lord saves. Um, and so he, he saves us from our sin. He saves us from the punishment of our sin. We call him our Savior. <laughs> That's the cool thing, is that sometimes these terms need to be explained a little bit more, and sometimes they're pretty self-explanatory. At least I hope so. Okay. And finally, um, our next key term is righteousness. A right relationship with God that he gives us through faith in Jesus. Um, and I guess the other, the other word that you could put in there is perfection. If I could, if I could type. So righteousness means that you are holy um, in God's eyes. And that's exactly what God's law demands. And for we who could not live up to God's law and do all the do's and don't and not do all the don'ts, um, God gave us his son to make it all done for us so that you and I are declared to be perfect and righteous in God's eyes. In the, uh, the sidebar, in the red box on the right-hand portion of your page, talks about the Lamb of God. Um, hopefully you can review that after we finish, after we finish tonight's lesson. We'll be done here in about, uh, about 15 minutes, I think. Um, but we talk about the Lamb of God. John calls Jesus the Lamb of God, which is a picture drawn from the celebration of the Passover. Um, that's in Exodus chapter 12. When the Israelites were slaves in Egypt, God rescued them by convincing the king of Egypt, named Pharaoh, to let the people go. God convinced him by working miracles that largely hurt Pharaoh and his people. The worst was the last plague, where God went through all of Egypt and killed all the firstborn children, both people and animals. God, but God provided safety for his people from this terrible plague. God told the Israelites to sacrifice a flawless lamb and to paint the doorway of their homes with the blood. Wow. Um, but that blood saved them from death. The Passover was a remarkable picture of how Jesus' death, his blood, the blood of the perfect one called the Lamb of God, there that we read in John 1 verse 29, um, how Jesus' death paid for our sins and protects us from death. And we remember that as, as well as Jesus' connection to it in a song that we call the, uh, the Lamb of God, um, the Agnus Dei, if you want the Latin tonight, um, Lamb of God, at least during uh, coronavirus time, we've just been saying that um, it's right after the words of institution, right before Holy Communion. Um, and we all read it together. Lamb of God, you take away the sin of the world, have mercy on us and grant us your peace. Um, that's the reminder that as, as the communicants come to the Lord's table for the Lord's Supper and Holy Communion, um, that Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, gives us his perfection once again. All right, so far so good. Um, number 13 takes us back to Romans chapter 6. Verse 23. And read the whole thing. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because of Jesus, what happens to us now after we die? Well, we have eternal life with Jesus forever in heaven. And you notice looking at this verse, Romans 6, verse 23, um, the first, first half is a statement of, of law. The wages of sin is death. That our sinful acts, actions and ideas have earned a paycheck of death. But God has given us a gift that is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Um, so number 14, what is the difference between law and gospel? Put that one on the screen because that one's a little bit longer. What's the difference between law and the gospel? Well, the law teaches us the bad news that we are sinners. The gospel is the good news that Jesus has saved us. 
the gospel isn't a chance to do over, to, to try again. Um, the gospel isn't just that the slate clean and said, all right, don't mess it up now. The gospel is that he wiped your slate clean and he has given you the perfection of Jesus. And what I'm sure one of the, what we'll get to in one of the later lessons is that he actually distributes this forgiveness um, through the spoken word and through simple things like uh, baptizing a baby or uh, distributing the Lord's Supper in Holy Communion to people, um, that God gives the gift of forgiveness again. That is the gospel. So the law, um, the law shows our sin and the gospel shows our Savior, if you want that quick little summary. Um, number 15, it's important for us to hear both the law and the gospel regularly. What would happen if we only ever heard the law? Well, we would become depressed because we would have no hope. We'd be really downtrodden. Um, and I think there's, there's another option here as well. Spellcheck is saying that uncompassionate isn't a word. I would disagree. <laughs> um, if we only ever heard the law, well, we would become beaten down and depressed, um, if you want to use that word, because we would have no hope. All we hear is, you have to do this and don't do that, and the wages of sin is death, and by the way, you're going to die. Um, and if we only ever heard the law, well, we might become arrogant and, um, and tell ourselves that we have measured up, even though our conscience wouldn't agree. We might become uncompassionate and say, well, I did it, and surely, um, surely if something bad happened in your life, then what is it that you have done that was wrong? Um, we would become arrogant and uncompassionate because we thought we had measured up, or we would despair and be hopeless because we thought we would never measure up. And so we, we need to hear the gospel but we also need to hear the law because if we only ever heard the gospel we might forget how serious our sin really is um, that sin is serious enough that god gave his own son to die to suffer hell in your place and mine um, that's not a little thing that is a that is a god who takes sin seriously and we need to recognize that god takes sin seriously i mean um yeah <laughs> i don't know how else to put that and on, on your page, um, and I don't, I don't have an electronic version of this, but you'll have to look at your workbook, page 10, the differences between law and gospel. Um, we'll just kind of go down that, that the law is written both in our heart and in the Bible. Um, so everything, the natural knowledge of God, um, that is our, and, and our conscience, those speak God's law to us. The law is also in the Bible, but the gospel is only in the Bible. It needed to be revealed to us. Um, the differences between law and gospel, the law says, do this and don't do that. The gospel says it's done in Jesus. Um, the law shows our sin, points, us, <laughs> points out what we have done against God. The gospel shows our Savior. The words of John the Baptist, look the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, who takes away your sin and mine. Um, the law shows that we deserve eternal death. Not just, not just that our heart stops beating and we pass away, but that we deserve forever under God's punishment in hell. The gospel tells us that God has given us the gift of eternal life as something we could never earn or repay. Uh, the law says, it tells us what we have to, tells us that we have to do God's will, but the gospel makes us want to do God's will. The law says, do this or else. The gospel says, You're, you've been set free because Jesus has done it all. Um, so law and gospel together lead us to repentance and to believe in Jesus 
who is our only hope for salvation. Then finally, tonight we get into the topic of the authority of scripture. Um, if there are any questions, speak up. So 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 12 to 21. Um, so we've covered, we've covered the natural knowledge of God, the fact that, number one, every person knows by nature that God exists, that God has standards, and we fall short. Every person knows that by looking at the world around us and by looking at the voice of God's law within us that we call the conscience. That's um, the natural knowledge of God reveals God's law to us, to every person. The revealed knowledge of God is the Bible, the scriptures. Um, and in the Bible, we see all the things that the natural knowledge of God doesn't tell us. Um, the fact that we have this Jesus, the gospel message that Jesus has done all of God's law for you and for me. Um, and all that, <laughs> everything else that God says about himself um, that we couldn't know simply by observing the world around us. That's part of the revealed knowledge of God. The revealed knowledge of God is the Bible. And so we apply these spiritual truths to our lives as law and gospel. We recognize, um, according to God's law, that we have sinned against God. That is, we have broken his moral code, and he has the authority and ability to hold us accountable to that forever. <laughs> Ugh, because he's God and we're not. Um, but also, in the revealed knowledge of God in the Bible, we have the message of the gospel of forgiveness, that Jesus has fulfilled all of God's law and has given his perfection to you and to me, so that you can say that in God's eyes, you are perfect, you are holy, you are forgiven. Now, this final section talks about the authority of Scripture. 2 Peter 1, verses 12 through 21, kind of the, the two bullet points on the page. First of all, we can have complete confidence that what the Bible says about the seriousness of our sin, as well as the promise of forgiveness, is true, because the Bible is God's word. And then secondly, the Apostle Peter wrote to encourage his fellow Christians that what they believe wasn't a fairy tale, but rather the truth from God. Second uh, Peter 1, beginning in verse 12. Peter writes, so I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body, because I know that I will soon put it aside, as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. Um, so just looking at this part that we just read, Peter is saying, basically, I want to reiterate the truth about the Bible because he recognizes he's getting toward the end of his life. He's probably going to be dying soon, and he wants them to always be able to remember what he has said. And so he's, that's, that's why he's re reminding them of all these things. Now, pick it up in verse, verse 16. We do not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on a sacred mountain. And we have the word of the prophets made more certain. And you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So a couple of things um, as we get into this. Peter says, you know, we didn't follow made-up ideas, but we were eyewitnesses, and we heard this voice. Um, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And this fact verifies the word of the prophets. That is to say, the, old, the, the Bible, the scripture, um, the Old Testament is what he's referring to specifically here. Okay? 
All right, so talking about the authority of scripture. Scriptures um, is just a word for writings. We use this term for the writings that have come from God, uh, the Bible, plain and simple. The Bible is the writing that God has given to us. Um, so number 17, Peter was, I think we talked about this one already. Peter was convinced that he was going to die soon after he wrote this letter. So he said in verses 13 and 14, before that happened, what did he want to make sure to do? Well, he wanted to make sure that the people remembered what Jesus had done. We had looked at that um, briefly in, in that part. Let's see, verse, yeah, verses 14, right here. After my departure, he says, I want to make every effort to see that you'll always be able to remember these things because it's important. Um, so number 18. This is kind of a thought question. Um, why do you think, number 18, why do you think Peter emphasized the fact that he and the other apostles were eyewitnesses? Well, so the people could trust that they knew what they wrote um, so, that, so that the people would know that they weren't just making up stories, but eyewitnesses being somebody who would like go to court and testify from a witness stand under penalty of perjury. Peter says, you know, we were eyewitnesses. We didn't just get carried along by fables, cleverly invented stories. No, we were eyewitnesses. He's like, I was there. <laughs> um, I, heard, I heard this voice uh, on this Mount of Transfiguration that we're going to be talking about, um, not this Sunday, the following Sunday. We heard that voice. We ourselves heard it, that voice that came from heaven when we were, when we were with him on the sacred mountain. And uh, so number 18, so the people knew that they could trust what the apostles wrote. Peter really emphasizes the fact that they are eyewitnesses, meaning that they are trustworthy. How about number 19? According to Peter, what is another reason that people can trust the accuracy of the Bible? Um, and Paul wrote the same thing. And uh, this is you know, verse 21, that all the words of the Bible are from God. Um, this is a very important passage. Not, I mean, they, they all are, obviously, but this one is really pertinent to the topic we're talking about right now, which is the authority of Scripture, i.e., why should I read this book and believe what it says? Um, because <laughs> prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In other words, people didn't make this stuff up but God spoke through them. And, uh, and that is God's promise, which is our next key term, the word verbal inspiration, um, that God gave the writers of the Bible the exact words that they were supposed to write. Every word in the Bible is God's word, and everything in it is completely true. And so, you know, that's why um, in, in our church body, all of our pastors go through four years of, of Greek study and two years of Hebrew study at the bachelor's degree level, you know, college right after high school. Um, and then after college, after four years of college, we have four years of Greek, two years of Hebrew, then we go on to our seminary, which is another four years of, of Greek and Hebrew, as well as learning the really the art of pastoral ministry um, and all that goes into it. Okay, so on your page, uh, page 11, you have a little diagram there talking about verbal inspiration. It means that God gave or he guided or he reminded um, the, the writers of what he had said. Um, he reminded these men who were writing the thoughts and words that were God's words. Um, the fact that it is God's word shows that number one, it has no error. That is to say, it's not like, you know, God made a mistake. Oh, I didn't mean that word. Um, but it also means that God kept every promise, every promise, um, that the Bible is complete and without error. So obviously, we don't, we don't add to the Bible. If you have the Bible, you have enough. You don't need somebody else or some other writing to complement it. You have the Bible, you can read it. Um, we don't subtract it and say, well, you know, that part isn't very popular these days, or that part is... Um, is not something that we spend a lot of time in. 
um, but every part is worthwhile. We don't add, we don't subtract, and we don't change the meaning. Okay. We'll play this one. So where did we get the Bible? The Bible was written over the course of about 1600 years from around 1500 BC, uh, 1483, I think, um, which is when Moses began writing the first five books of the Bible, all the way through the year 100, um, 100 years after Jesus, AD 100, when John the Baptist writes the book of Revelation. Uh, so there are 66 books in the Bible. So if you have a Bible on your shelf, you actually have a library of 66 books sitting right there. It's divided into two sections. The Old Testament has 39 books and was mostly written in the Hebrew language. Um, there, is, there are some portions of the Old Testament that are written in Aramaic. Um, Aramaic and Hebrew are similar, you know, they're like cousin languages, kind of like uh, Spanish and Portuguese, where you can, you can understand it once you know what you have to change about how you read it. Um, so it was written mostly in Hebrew, it was written before Jesus came, and it points ahead to what Jesus would do. The Old Testament contains both law and gospel. I think we touched on that briefly before. Um, so 39 books written in Hebrew points ahead to what Jesus would do. The New Testament has 27 books and written in Greek, um, is written after Jesus came and points back to what Jesus did. Likewise, it also contains both law and gospel. Um, all right, and the, the last little free for nothing tonight is um, a little glimpse of what Hebrew looks like and what Greek looks like. Um, so you have Genesis 1 verse 1 in Hebrew, and Hebrew reads right to left. It's Hebrew is very simple, um, I'd say simple language. Um, it's not very complex, but it's backwards to pretty much everything that we think of. So reading from right to, to left, you can see kind of the uh, pronunciation underneath. Bereshit bara Elohim et ha-shamayim v'et ha-aretz. Bereshit, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Cool. And John 3.16 in Greek, uh, this one reads left to right. Um, <laughs> and reads like this. Hutos gar egapesen hafteas ton kuzman. Hosta tan huion tan margane eroken hina pas hina pas ha pistoion ais autan me apoletai al eke zoen ionion ionion. There we are. Oh, been a while since I've read Greek out loud. Ahutoskar, uh, for thus God loved the world, so that, with the result that, um, the Son, the only begotten one, he gave, so, so that he gave his only begotten Son, Hinapas, in order that everyone believing, Hapistoyon, Ais Autan, the ones believing in him or upon him, may apolite, apolitai, uh, would not perish, Allah Eche, but would have eternal life or life forever. That won't be on your quiz. <laughs> uh, some connection questions. I um, want you to give a little bit of thought to this uh, letter A. Because the Bible is verbally inspired, meaning every word is God's word, which statement is more accurate? The Bible contains God's word or the Bible is God's word? And why? Well, the Bible is God's word. Contains implies that not all of the Bible is God's word. That incorrect understanding leads some to question or deny things that the Bible says. Um, so if, if it's kind of a, kind of like saying, you know, the, the coffee, the coffee mug contains some coffee. Well, what else is in there? Toilet water um, or the coffee mug is full of coffee. It is coffee. Okay, well, pass a cup. And letter B, um, I'll leave this one for 
you to think through and jot down an answer for yourself. Imagine that a coworker asks why you believe that the Bible is different from any other book and how would you respond? There are, are a few other, <laughs> probably a good three or four different ways that you could go with that one. Um, as far as homework, um, I'll make sure that we, we've got a couple couple more catechisms coming and this book or this course makes use of the catechism for external reading. The catechism is a nice summary, um, a topical summary of, of the Bible. And so that's what, that's what we'll be using to kind of supplement this. And I'll make sure that we get those distributed hopefully this next week or so. Um, but also there's some introductory pages before lesson one. Um, there's that portion called the brief history of God's plan of salvation and then how to use a Bible. Um, and even if, even if you're familiar with, you know, God's plan of salvation, or even if you're familiar with how to read a Bible, um, I think those are both very helpful and they're a fairly quick read as well.